Hello, uh, my name is Eddie Barnes and welcome to this week's Our Scottish Future podcast. So this is our, our first podcast after the Easter break. And over the holidays, we had to think about the format of this podcast and we de- we've decided to, to, to uh, take it into a slightly different direction. There is a lot of commentary, a lot of commentary at the moment about what's going on in the in Scottish politics. Uh, we think people are pretty well served elsewhere on that. So what we decided to do uh, for the podcast for the next few weeks is to, if you like, dump the commentary. So no chat here today on your favourite choice of camper van or who is next to help with police with their inquiries or indeed Hamza Yusuf's uh, media strategy. Fascinating though all of that is. Instead, we've decided to use this podcast to look at policy in Scotland and specifically around policy implementation. Our guiding mission as a think tank is to make the case for a changed UK and for uh, improved system of devolution here in Scotland. So what we decided to focus on for the next few weeks in the podcast is the second bit of that on the on the operation of devolved government in, in Scotland. And the plan is to take one issue at a time, stick it under the microscope and ask how it might be done better. To look at why things don't get implemented properly and what measures we might take to fix it. So in future weeks, we're going to look at Scotland's uh, drug deaths crisis, at health inequalities, at the lack of progress on net zero. Today, though, given that uh, many young people next week are preparing to sit their hires and their, and their nat fives, we thought we'd look at the thorny question of the Curriculum for Excellence programme. Uh, I think it's fair to say that no one policy initiative in Scotland has been so raked over, so polarising, but also extremely misunderstood over the last 10 to 20 years. So today uh, we're going to look at what it actually is uh, to ask why it has become so controversial and distrusted in many cases and how we can how we can implement it a little better. What kind of improvements can we make uh, to, uh, to, a, to a system that was that was essentially supported right across the political spectrum back in the 2000s when it was introduced uh, but as I say, has come to to be so controversial. So, as always, we have brought together some uh, some brilliant experts and some uh, some thoughtful people to talk about this today. Uh, we, and I would like to introduce them to you now. So, first up, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Avik Bhattacharya. He's the research director of the Social Market Foundation and alumni of Colts Academy in Aberdeen. Avik, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, we've got Dr. Neil McLennan, a former teacher and education expert of, of great renown. Neil, welcome. Eddie, good to be working with you again. Thank you for the invites. And finally, we're joined by Emma Scythe, uh, a senior reporter at the Times Educational Supplement. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Hi there. Nice to be here. So um, so we're going to split it into three parts, as I say. And the first part is simply to try and understand because I think there is still misunderstanding about this. What the heck is curriculum for excellence? I mean, it seems a bizarre question given it is now almost 20 years since it first uh, came into being, uh, or at least was first kind of discussed in the political cycle. So uh, Emma, can I turn to you first? Because given that you are a resident education uh, journalist here, I think it's fair to say a lot of parents still, uh, a lot of people in the sector still completely confused by what actually curriculum for excellence is. So how would you simplify it? How could you sum it up for us in, in a way that just most of us could actually understand? 
<laughs> this is true. It's as you say, it's the million dollar question. But basically, the idea was that we wanted to create a curriculum that was fit for the 21st century. And um, the conclusion uh, was that it was getting harder to predict the kind of jobs that pupils would be doing when they left school. And so we needed to create this curriculum that um, brought produced at the other end of the system, well rounded um, human beings that were essentially ready for anything. The, the, the sort of narrative at the time was that change was coming so thick and fast. We didn't know the jobs that people were going to do. There was an, a presumption that they wouldn't be in a career for life, that they would maybe have multiple different jobs. So if we were going to prepare them for this, you know, sort of kind of quite uncertain future, um, what what is it that should be the goals of the curriculum? They were basically summed up in the four capacities, which, you know, sort of everybody in Scottish education is familiar with. I don't know how much lay people are, but these were the successful learners, confident individuals, responsible citizens, effective contrib contributors. And those were the sort of the goals of the of the curriculum. And so the general consensus is that um, in secondary in particular, where there have been bigger problems, uh, is, I think it's fair to say, with the implementation of curriculum for, for, curriculum for Excellence, that we're pretty decent at the first one, at successful learners, but we've kind of dropped the ball on the other three. So the, another idea behind the curriculum was that it was meant to free up teachers to teach. So it was meant to be a less prescriptive curriculum, less about um, content and more about um, outcomes, you know, so, so that teachers would be working towards delivering these outcomes but um, they would have a bit more freedom in terms of you know sort of what the content of lessons actually was so they could you know sort of that the idea being that that would maybe lead to um, richer learning experiences that would be more relevant to the pupils in the classes there would be more breadth there would be more depth there would be more personalization more choice so that's, I hope that helps. No, that's really helpful. <laughs> that's, really helpful. that's curriculum for excellence in a nutshell. It was, it was meant to be this curriculum fit for the 21st century. It started to be introduced in 2010. And then we started to introduce the qualifications in 2013. And pupils sat exams for the first time in 2014. These were the qualifications that were meant to chime better with curriculum for excellence and, you know, sort of meet its aims and, and aspirations. So, yeah, so that was the national. So national five in 2014, the new higher in 2015 the new advanced higher in 2016. Thank, thank you for enlightening us I think that's a really helpful explanation which is that essentially to say Avik if I'll come to you next that curriculum for excellence actually isn't a curriculum is it <laughs> I mean that, that um and but but it's something that is still outside of Scotland actually still seen as as being something um that that is that is genuinely almost you know if not revolutionary something that you know that that is is seen as a very very good thing I believe in Wales for example they're now looking at it is that right? I mean, it's the, uh, the the first paradox of the curriculum for excellence is that Scotland obviously doesn't have a national curriculum. So even prior to that, um, so it isn't a you know, statutory requirement. And and even um, as you, as as Emma laid out as, as you said just now, the kind of hope is that these are supposed to be uh, a broad framework within which teachers are given kind of latitude. Um, so so it tells them kind of the the destination of the sorts of goals we might try and lead towards, um, but leaves them kind of free as to what the best route is to get there in, in, in principle. Um, and uh, the OECD, the, the Club of Rich Countries, as the economist likes to call them, um, which is kind of a very prominent in international uh, policy learning, but particularly in education policy, because it runs uh, PISA, the kind of big international tests, has been 
heavily kind of involved in her and has been quite a champion and promoter in many cases of the um of the curriculum for excellence so it sees it as uh in its review a couple of years ago uh still described the curriculum for excellence as an inspiring example of um essentially best practice uh and listed a, a number of countries that, that it claims have been inspired by it but it's kind of closest to home yes exactly uh wales um has, has modeled its kind of curriculum forms um in important ways on the on the scottish model um inevitably kind of the the, the contrast is always with england uh so, so wales is important because it's kind of followed the scottish model in in, in, in interesting ways um uh, the english kind of approach has been to go uh, head first in almost the, the opposite direction so if the scottish approach is to prioritize skills um, mm. The English approach has been to focus on substantive knowledge. Mm. And there's a kind of ongoing debate as to how far these things are mutually exclusive um, or w- whether you need to kind of have uh, developed knowledge in order to properly develop skills. Can you do this kind of in abstraction? Um, are they kind of two sides of the same coin? But Essentially, the the English, uh, the, the government of Westminster and the, the way the curriculum is developed in England has been towards prioritising these are the things that we expect you to know at each stage, these particular facts, and that's the scaffold around which we grow our skills, uh, whereas Scotland has tried to um, kind of move away from that towards what are the, what are the sorts of capacities and uh, yeah. resources we want to have children to have rather than um, things we want them to know. Neil, I was I was struck by um, Emma's point about that you know that the, the vision of curriculum for excellence originally was essentially saying, look, we are entering this very new new world, this twenty first century, where um, you know you, you know where knowledge is expanding beyond, if you like, the the the, the capacity for schools just to simply say here here learn this and it will do you for the rest of your life. Re- really, this was about equipping students with the with the capacity and 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 the skills and the character if you like to try and handle the challenges of the 21st century is do, do you still see that as being the right kind of model of education um or or as, as Vic says is it is it do you think the, the England is onto something or has been onto something with prioritizing the knowledge side of things what's your what's your take generally if you like on the on the on the on the whole concept still 20 years on um sorry sorry to neil, I, uh, neil. sorry to neil, sorry, that's neil. Okay. thanks there's, there's a balance to be struck. i mean i think one of the things that to highlight straight away is the, the economy of um today and of the future is a replication of the education system you know we, the education system should be channeling innovation and and, and what's the what's the workplace what society going to look like um, one of the big challenges we've got is 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 that element of philosophizing. That sounds very grand, but what is education for? And education is for multiple things. Yes, it's for knowledge. Knowledge is absolutely imperative. Goodness, if it's if it doesn't have knowledge, then it's a it's a bit of a a, a strange conundrum. Um, but it's also about skills, and it's also about well being. And it's also about citizenship and, and, and community cohesion. And, yeah. and CFE sort of laid that out quite nicely. And, and actually everyone was was bought into this idea of the, the four capacities and they were bought into this bold new vision that moved away from the old 5 to 14 and the old stand degrees to something that was was innovative, was fresh, and, and, and was seen as a, a, as a global um, positive at the time. You know, it, was, it was a real bold step to take. 
the the issue becomes um twofold. It becomes that buffering, just as as, as a week um outlines. It becomes that bit about well, how far do we have this skills? And we see this constantly with this constant return. And I see it again just now with the Muir review. I see it in, in ministerial statements of we need to get parity of esteem between skills and knowledge. We've been saying that for decades, you know. So, so what's gone wrong that we, we we've not got that right? That we keep on going back to that, and that goes back to the the issue is that the vision's there, and and people buy into this sort of broad concept, but the p- policy implementation is, to be quite frank, is shocking, uh, and that is a, a major problem that we've got. And um, that's cited by academics in terms of the, the challenges. Um, they might not use the word shocking, but certainly the challenges. And um, papers by Priestley and Miller outline the. The success rate of Scottish policy initiatives in Scottish education, the policy implementation is poor. CFE started off, the rollout of it was really good. We went through all these building the curriculum papers that were slowly fed in, dialogue with the profession, shaping up of these papers that looked at, we had curriculum areas, early years, learning and teaching, skills and assessment. And we had this bedding in and engagement process. It was really good. But then once we got to the point it was it was on the ground and running, it seemed to break down. And part of that's because of policy failures. We we're not um, implementing policy well. But to be fair, we do also need to say that the vision was was put together at a time of plenty. At a time of I remember multiple minibuses sitting outside schools because schools had the budget A to have multiple minibuses and to send kids on lots and lots of trips and lots and lots of really exciting activities. Mm. But now we're in a time of, of real challenge that isn't the funds that this bold vision was put together. And now we're trying to implement it on a shoestring of what was was available at that time. So mm. that does need to be acknowledged, but there's no escaping the fact that policy implementation in Scotland has been shocking. And, and all we've seen is a, a replication of the same debates and policy papers coming out that end up on dusty shelves. And then five years later, we're asking another expert to go and do the same discussion about the same theme, but without any improvement for learners. We'll, we'll come on to the implementation bit in a second, because I'm, I'm really interested in why it is that, that that has happened. Before we do that, can I just very quickly go around the three of you and just ask, um, do we still think that the original vision is is the right one, is the good one? That 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 idea of this more balanced, skills-based, you know, the four capacities, all of that, is that still something that we think is a, is is the right way forward, Emma, if I could come to you first. Speaking to head teachers and teachers in Scotland, I think that there is this general consensus still that curriculum for excellence is the right direction of travel, but the the problem has been in actually implementing it in schools. Okay, right. Uh, Avik, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to disagree with the with the with the basic principle um, of uh, giving y- young people the kind of flexibility and the resources that they need to thrive in the world. But I think there's a couple of uh, uh, other factors um, as well. I mean, the first thing is there's just there's there's a big old sum cost here, uh, which means that I think there is there is a general exhaustion, and as we've seen in public services generally big reorganizations, big fundamental kind of revolutionary changes um, just leave people a bit tired and exhausted. We see this kind of all the time in the NHS, for example. Um, And so moving away from this would be a huge step and would eat up a lot of political time, a lot of resources. But kind of as we've said as well, within the curriculum for excellence, there's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of ability to shape Mm. both kind of 
nationally what it is, but even at a, at a school level or hopefully at the classroom level, it should give us kind of scope to do lots of different things within that broad framework. So that yeah. should be an asset and something that means that we shouldn't need to kind of chuck it in the bin and start again um, from scratch, uh, even if even if we wanted to, which I don't think many people do. And, and Neil, stick stick with the original idea, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly, um, th there are dissenters. It needs rebranded because people have sort of lost faith in it. And, and yeah, that's, that's part of it. It does need rebranded re and brought back together. The four capacities, uh, you know, broadly cover the four sort of big areas of what education is about. So successful learners, knowledge. And then you've got responsible citizens. That's about sort of community cohesion, citizenship. You've got um, confident individuals, that's sort of health and well-being type, type approaches. And then effective contributors is really jobs. The only two things that add in, because things have changed. This curriculum, um, when it first came out 20 odd years ago, I said that should not be the last curriculum that teachers see in their lifetime because the curriculum does need to evolve because society evolves. And the yeah. only two things that I think really need to be included in there is something around about sustainability. That The sustainability yeah. agenda is so important just now. And do we, do we cover that? Yes, you could say it's part of responsible citizenship, but does it need to be explicit? And, and the second one is around about safeguarding. Safeguarding issues are, are coming plenty. We've got the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry. And mm. in that regard, I think we need not only a philosophization of what education is about in Scotland, mm. but also a philosophization of what is it to be an educator mm. in 21st century Scotland. And throwing out a, a bold idea with that, doctors have the Hippocratic Oath. Mm. Do we need to have... A, a, an educator's oath, you know, what does it mean to be an educator in a high-performance system that protects and gets the best out of kids? I think that's something yeah. that we, we, we need to think about as we go forwards. Okay, so so we've talked a little bit about um, what Curriculum for Excellence is, and I think we've agreed we'd like to to, gen, to, to, to broadly keep it with maybe a few tweaks. So I, I want to get into the question of the implementation of uh, of the, the programme. Um and a story that um, was told by Kia Bloomer, one of the the architects of Curriculum for Excellence, about a visit he made to Norway a few years back when he was talking about the implementation uh, of of Curriculum for Excellence. And um, he um, he explained to these teachers in these slightly bemused teachers in in Norway that a, a teacher in Scotland who was supposed to implement Curriculum for Excellence was supposed to be familiar with. Four capacities, 12 attributes, 24 capabilities, five levels, seven principles, six entitlements, 10 aims, eight curriculum areas, three interdisciplinary areas, four contexts for learning, and 8,000 and 1,820 experiences and outcomes. And it was just, a, I think, potentially gave a insight into the level of uh, complexity uh, that people are having to deal with on the ground in implementing this. So, if bureaucracy um, and, and added kind of bureaucracy has been one problem, can I just go, again go around the room and talk about what what you see as being the key problems when it's when it has come to implementing um, curriculum for excellence and why it is that we've had this this problem? What have been the kind of factors involved that have uh, that have seen um, curriculum for excellence not being implemented properly? So Emma, could I come to you first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that maybe something that's important to say is that I think that the general consensus is is that. Curriculum for Excellence is being fairly well implemented in primary schools. So the problem yes. area is usually seen as secondary. I'm sorry. Um, I, should have, yeah, we should, I think we're talking solely about secondary here. That's, but, right. Okay. Yeah, okay. I agree so, with you. I agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah so, so speaking about um, secondary then, 
um, as you know, the, all the, the documentation that you speak about that was, you know, sort of flagged as an issue with the implementation of curriculum for excellence. Absolutely. Um, the qualifications also generally uh, cop a lot of blame for this. You know, the, um, there have been two pieces of research that have been published, you know, sort of in recent years about the implementation of curriculum for excellence is that OECD review. And then there was the University of Stirling research. And both of them, you know, sort of were critical of um, Scotland's reliance, you know, sort of heavy reliance on external examinations. And then the sort of backwash effect that that has on learning and teaching and what happens lower down in secondary schools, you know, so everything essentially, you know, sort of then the idea is that everything then essentially becomes a preparation for exams and that influences the kind of learning that goes on in classrooms so instead of having this you know sort of rich learning experience that was originally envisaged you end up with you know sort of a lot more of a focus on memorization and rote learning and so you're not getting that richness that that was meant to be you know sort of one of the goals of, of a curriculum for excellence so the qualifications is one thing that is you know, generally considered, if you speak to head teachers, if you speak to teachers, generally considered to be something that gets in the way. I thought it was really interesting that Neil mentioned about um, funding, because I think that that's something that, you know, is often, you know, sort of left out, you know, that you, you, you kind of had curriculum for excellence being introduced after the financial crash. And so the, the, the situation in schools was one of budgets being chipped away at, and we've never really escaped from that scenario. It's not like they're wading through piles of cash just now, you know, so so um, that's that's kind of continued to be a problem. Another thing that stops you from having a nice broad curriculum with loads of, you know, sort of course choices is teachers and teacher shortage. And although we have enough teachers in um, subject areas, you know, that we maybe say like, you know, sort of social subjects, you know, and being reasonably well served, there are still some, you know, sort of difficult areas, maths, um, technical um, education, home uh, home economics, you know, so, you know, that's something else that kind of gets in the way. I was speaking to a, head, a, to a deputy head teacher recently who said that he would love to run a wider range of courses um, when it comes to maths. You know, there's this new applications of mathematics qualification in Scotland, but that it was a struggle just to get enough teachers to run traditional maths qualifications. So that was, you know, that was, that was, you know, sort of, that was not a possibility. So, so I, th I think that those are, you know, a few things to throw into the mix. Qualifications funding, and can you get the teachers? <laughs> uh, Avik, what would you say to that? I mean, um, Emma mentioned, cited that University of, of Stirling study, uh, which I was reading as well, and which talks about how you know a great deal of curriculum making is driven by external demands for for data, particularly uh, relating to to attainment. So you've got these kind of clashing kind of aims of this very kind of idealistic vision of a broad education at the same time as central government is saying show me the numbers you know i mean um yeah just just thinking about what emma was saying there i, I wonder if there's just uh the curriculum for excellence is just more structurally challenging to the way that secondary schools are set up so if i think about how i did primary school for each year you had essentially one primary teacher uh, who would take your class all the way through you would have a lot of kind of uh, scope to draw connections between the maths that you're doing and the history that you're doing and things like that. Where a secondary school is set up in this way, um, it almost starts with the with, with the exams. It starts with the qualifications and then works backwards. And so you are structurally kind of in the silos of the subjects. You are 
um, working your way towards those qualifications. And so I think it was just, uh, I wonder if it's just always going to be more difficult to implement yeah. it in secondary schools. Um, but you're right, the, the, this, this backwash kind of idea, um, which I think was both from the Sterling report and the OECD report, is uh, makes a lot of sense um, in terms of, uh, ironically, so so the, so the curriculum for excellence was meant to go kind of three to 18, it was meant to connect the different phases of school better, but it seems to have kind of hit this juddering halt around 15 in some places. And in other schools, um, essentially you start, you start your senior phase. So senior phase isn't meant to start until you're 15. In some places that presumably it will start when you're 12, because that's that's the way the secondary school has always been set up. And, and, and there's problems, particularly when some schools uh, are, are, are doing it one way and starting to prepare their kids for exams from, from, from day one. And other schools are doing what they're supposed to do by the by the letter of the curriculum for excellence uh, and get to 15 and find find their um, uh, find the kids underprepared. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, so there's a lot of conversation about, is this just being driven by league tables? Is it being driven by the Scottish government's desire for data? I, 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 I don't know the situation on the ground well enough to know that, but I would be surprised if it's only that. From Certainly from conversations with parents that I've had, certainly from my expectation of what it's like for parents and for kids themselves, um, there, is good, there is still going to be a sense you have to change society as well yeah. if you think that's the right thing to do, to get away from the idea that the, the ultimate purpose for schools is to get the grades you, get, you need to get into university or get the certificates you need to get onto the next stage of your life. Yeah, and so that, and if that kind of mental shift and societal shift doesn't come, then I, I don't think you can just lay all that blame at the Scottish government's um, door, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, like my personal experience here, I'm a, I'm a parent, and I've got you know, my eldest is in doing his highs this year. My my second kid is doing his her uh, her nat fives, and um, you know, the pressure that's coming from us is get your A's it's not it's not be a it's not be a, a confident individual <laughs> at the moment I mean bluntly you know that's the, that, that's just the way it is isn't it and Neil is it is it um what, what do you make of this you know in terms of the the implementation and 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 the problems uh and 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 the causes for that the causes of those yeah. problems we have one day the Sears currently preparing <laughs> for hires as well and <laughs> gone through and, and and listen bless them kids and and and, and teachers I think it needs to be acknowledged and noted well done to them for getting through COVID which was a horrendous period I know the challenges of young people studying online etc that's, that's that's been a challenge but going back to the broader sweep in terms of CFE I think there's four things that need to be acknowledged one is as you've rightly said from from Keir Bloomer's numeric assessment there there is a multitude of pieces of paper associated with this. There is paperwork galore. Now, the consultation process leading up, as I said before, building the curriculum was really good, and that was a really positive process. And we ended up with a, a rather thick green folder, which teachers will remember only too well, the CFE folder that they got. Um, but it was significant even at that point. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, one amusing story with that, I remember being in one school who used the green folder for two reasons. One, the deputy head used it as a doorstopper, um, which is <laughs> an interesting use of a, of a curriculum document. And the second one, any kids who were naughty and sent down to his office, they, they used to copy out the CFE um, experiences and outcomes. And I can tell you, those <laughs> children knew the experiences and outcomes far better than many policy experts in Scotland at the time. Um, but an outrageous use of, of a curriculum document. But that's that is highly something that actually it wasn't necessarily grappled with by everyone. You know, there was yeah. many who said we've seen this before, curriculum reform, been here. 
The wheels started to come off at implementation stage. Some of that, as Emma and I have agreed, was resource issues, but there was also policy issues. And one of the policy issues became when there was issues that arose, we flung more paper at it. So the E's and O's, the experiences and outcomes, and some subjects were relatively satisfactory. In other areas like sciences, they were not happy with what had been produced, and they still aren't happy with um, either the E's and O's or the national qualifications today. So you've got that disparity. And what we ended up doing was flinging more and more and more guidance at it till the point we got to the the, the headlines about twenty thousand pages of guidance, and that wasn't a wonderful lie. There was queens of paperwork, so it was constantly trying to solve the problem by a control mechanism from 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 on high. There are a couple of other things that are of of, of interest in terms of the policy um, um issues when the wheels came off. Um, the second thing is politics. Politics interfered with it. CFE was formed in a, a Lib Lab um, coalition. It was largely then taken forward by, as we know, the SNP governments afterwards. And without getting into the politics of it, um, Scotland has a relatively immature political system. And, and many people won't like me saying that, but it's a new parliament, and it's a new parliament that wanted to show that it could do things. So politicians started to meddle, bureaucrats started to meddle, and all of a sudden, you got all this guidance and you got pressure and you started to get this performance management um, process. Um, politicians get on to senior leaders, head teachers feeling under pressure and, and just mountains and mountains of paperwork um, forming. Within that, you had systems, national systems that weren't working. Education Scotland as a national body was not working. It's widely acknowledged. It's now being reformed as a result of that. People knew for years it wasn't working. The merger between the inspectorate and the support wing was not a healthy one. Um, the Scottish College for Educational Leadership was seen as a bright, innovative thing. And instead of letting it fly, it was brought in to the dead hand of Education Scotland. People used to joke about the, the E logo of Education Scotland being like a Pac-Man that would go along eating up all of the good things and all of the innovation and, and driving it out of education. Thank goodness it's, it's now being reformed. Um, so that became a problem. But then you've got two other problems. One is, um, going back to that philosophical issue, we're trying to implement an egalitarian meritocracy. And yeah. you just can't do that. Um, and that, that's a challenge alongside what a, a, a former um, head of service described to me as CFE was a blend between what he described as the Holy Sandal Brigade and the men in suits. And what he meant was this sort of liberal, free, you know, discovery learning, outdoor learning, et cetera, et cetera, alongside the statisticians who wanted exam results and rigour. And as a result, you had this clash of the egalitarian meritocracy, the men in, in suits and the, 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 the sort of Holy Sandal Brigade, as he called it, yeah. and, and it never really got over that tension. Then we get the perverse incentives, and that's the last thing that starts to kill it. Lots of perverse incentives put in. And here's an example just from this week. Um, it, we really have got great hope that Jenny Goruth, as a former teacher, someone I worked with at Learning and Teaching Scotland, may be able to sort this as, as education minister, maybe not operative word because she's got lots of challenges ahead of her. But in her vision statement, um, in terms of the things that are important for her in education and the documents come out this week, um, there's a, a comment about meeting interim targets of 18% of uh, first degree entrants coming from deprived communities. Classic perverse incentive. Lots of young people being funneled into university. Big question is, is that right? They get into first year, they've not got the supports in place, and they don't complete their degree course. Mm -hmm. So why don't we shift that statistic and say, well, how many 
of the, from from poor communities complete their degree. Um, because we saw lots of statistics early on in this push to get people again, funneling them towards knowledge and university. Lots of young people going particularly to new universities, great figures of uptake, but the drop-off rate atrocious. And there's lots of examples of that throughout this 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 process where we brought more and more paperwork in, where perverse incentives were put in place that started to destroy the original vision of what we're trying to do here. Right. Fascinating. Can I pick up on Abby, the... Yes, please. Uh, Neil just raised there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, an interesting theory or an interesting kind of uh, discussion point that I've seen raised is a question of whether, how far the guidance was coming down from on top and how, and how far it was kind of requested and expected. And, and there is a kind of theory going out there that fits with a lot of what I've heard about the kind of cultural issues in Scottish education. There's a bit of almost learned helplessness. So we started out, as, we, as, as Emma laid out right at the start, with this idea of teachers were supposed to have more autonomy, more flexibility, uh, more capacity to, to work things out on their own. And you can imagine a world in which these ESINOs are, they're, they're a reference point, there may be a bit of a helpful guidance, and you work things out beyond that. And certainly there's some people with I've, I've spoken to within the kind of education system in Scotland who say, well, the teachers couldn't handle that or the education system couldn't handle that. And so they went back expecting, well, how this is far too vague. We need more detail. Um, and so I, I don't that's not necessarily to put blame on anybody, but I think it it speaks to something that's kind of I picked up in my research about the the, the culture of education in Scotland. Um, the system that was meant to encourage autonomy, you have to kind of build the capacity, just as you're building capacity in the students, you need to build capacity in the education system and the teachers as well to use that autonomy rather than just expecting them to, to, to get on with it. And that, that maybe is one of the one of the issues that we had. I think Neil's point about politicisation is really interesting as well, because this is a thing that comes up time and again. And it's quite a peculiar one. It's something I think something we should probably kind of dig into a little bit because from the outside, I've always found this argument a little bit odd when people say the worst thing that happened for education was Nicola Sturgeon saying, uh, judge me on my record in education. I mean, I think it's peculiar because firstly, self-evidently, she hasn't been particularly judged on her record in education, given where her reputation was, her competence in office versus where the kind of the, this is success of education in Scotland. Um, but more broadly, you would have thought that getting focus and attention on the education system, getting that, having a level of consensus. Uh, we, we talk about depoliticizing things, we put, talk about putting stuff on the, on the um, as, as making it a priority and putting it on the agenda. The conditions, the political conditions were as benign as you can imagine. Um, when you have all five major parties signed up for this uh, and when they're saying that this is a key priority and a key indicator of what we're doing as, as, as Scotland. And so, it's an interesting question to ask why that politicization has been felt to be harmful rather than positive. I think you made a really positive point there about that. Um, you know, was it coming from a high additional guidance or was it, you know, asked for? And it's a really good point because in the lead up in terms of the process, all these good consultations and everyone was bought into it. And um, we got to building the curriculum for which was a skills document. And we really should have spent a lot of time on that because, goodness, skills are important. That whole thing about, you know, the constant debate about parity of esteem of skills and knowledge. But it was rushed over because the profession wanted to know what's the assessment going to look like. And that was partly the profession's fault. They wanted to know 
how are we going to be assessed? And it meant the BTC4, the skills document, the, the good discussion that happened with the other ones didn't happen as we rushed to what's the exam going to look like. Now, that's replicated exactly in, in exactly what you said, the um, the rollout process, where teachers did go belly up. And, 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 and in that sense, many teachers will criticise me for saying that, but they asked for more guidance. And goodness, did they get it. They got it in screeds more guidance. But the issue, again, is why were they so determined to know exactly? Why were they so hypervigilant, touchy, concerned about what's the assessment going to look like? And actually, we've not got enough guidance. We need to get guidance. It's because of the culture in education. There's a micromanagement culture. There's a fear culture. And that creates that bit where people want absolute clarity before they proceed with anything. And it's all very well, John Swinney later said, proceed uh, proceed um, until apprehended and his attempt to try and get empowerment but it's all very well saying that when you're in a performance management culture where if you get it wrong or indeed if you don't get the results you get hit with a big stick over the head so there is a huge cultural aspect there to look at as to yes it's obviously yes we've got this innovative curriculum you're responsible for it crack on but if the cultural bedding isn't in place which allows for that, you can say as many times as you want, but the profession will continue to look for more guidance. And we, we sort of flip-flop between, yes, it's, a, it's an empowering curriculum to seeking more uh, um, um, guidance and support. And I think that's, that's one of the issues that we've got with CFE ultimately not succeeding. Emma, is, does that tally with what you're hearing from from teachers as well, that, that, that they, they feel this kind of contradiction between um this kind of performance related uh per, you know performance related uh system of education at the same time as being told you know let a thousand flowers bloom <laughs> i think that i remember that quote from john to from john swinney um who's the education secretary at, at that time and um i remember what larry flanagan who used to be the general secretary of the eis scotland's largest teaching union said in response to that which was the trouble is in scotland in scottish education you get apprehended pretty quickly and so I think that that was him, you know, you know, sort of, you know, so, so yeah, I think that that is absolutely true that that, and that's, again, that's reflected in the sort of priestly research that you were referencing before the University of um, Stirling research, you know, sort of talking about um, schools, you know, sort of wanting to innovate, but being concerned about, you know, sort of being still judged on their five at stats, which is, you know, sort of, what proportion of pupils is you know are attaining five national fives? What proportion are attaining five hires? So these you know sort of performance measures. You know people on the one hand you know sort of as Neil saying they want to innovate, but on the other hand there's still all this you know kind of accountability and you know sort of the the University of Stirling oh, sorry <laughs> the University of Stirling um research you know sort of also talks about that in terms of you know sort of inspection and things as well you know and then being held to account by you know sort of local authorities you know sort of schools statistics being um. You know, sort of picked over um but there's been this general sort of idea that, that that's not really what people want to do but that's what the system forces them to do at the present moment okay we're, we're going to start summing up because uh, we've got just about five minutes left so I'd, I'd like to kind of go around the room again and just ask um two a, a question in two parts one is what what do we think are the kind of lessons of this this whole 20-year period and if are there some broad lessons and can indeed those lessons 
translate um, into into wider kind of um, lessons about the way Scotland is run and the way uh, we govern ourselves. And then, um, and what do you think? And then, secondly, you know, what do you think are the some of the solutions to this? Because it seems to me we, we've kind of arrived at this. It's a squaring of the circle. It almost seems to me, and that we've got, you know, on the one hand, a justifiable, you know, desire for for data for performance uh, related stats. I mean, again, I go back to my experience as a parent. You know, that's kind of what a lot of people want in education. At the same time as having a, a system of education that you know, I think we're all agreed is much more rounded than simply uh, than simply just plugging, you know, drumming knowledge into children's heads. And I think it's and I think we're agreed it's a good thing. But how do we square that circle? Um, or, or indeed, is it even possible to square that circle? So um, so maybe I could just put those two two questions to to you all and then we'll we'll wrap up and I'll start with a week, if that's OK, since you were nodding vigorously. Sure. Um. I mean, I think taking a step back, I think I think there's deep kind of cultural issues in Scottish education, um, as I've written about uh, with uh, for, for our Scottish future in the past, um, in terms of uh, encouraging innovation, diversity, uh, experimentation, being comfortable with the idea that experiments are not going to pay off necessarily all the time, but trying things is important and valuable. And so I think cultural change is very difficult. And when you uh, come out with a policy uh, like the Curriculum for Excellence or a set, or a set of measures like the Curriculum for Excellence, which are meant to encourage that sort of uh, innovative thinking and uh, new ways of doing things without shifting the underlying culture. Well, well, that's where you run into difficulties, as yeah. we've discussed. But I think there's kind of a broader issue. And this is I think this is deeper than this is deeper than the public service or the public sector or Scotland. I think this is generally a British problem more generally is that management is really difficult and management quality is often quite poor. And so that's why you get into things like micromanagement. That's why you get the misuse of statistics um, and giving people the right, the kind of the right uh, amount of rope to, um, to, to try different things. This is, this is not just a schools in Scotland problem. This is a problem right across the economy. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't think it's going to be any quick fixes. I think these are, these are deep seated kind of cultural things. But I don't think this is about pulling your policy levers necessarily. I mean, we as for, with work I've done for our Scottish so future, I've made kind of some suggestions about different pots of funding for innovative uh, types yeah. of types of project or an innovation prize or, or something like that. But I think it's about sending those are symbolic. That's about sending signals about the sorts of organisations, and it might be about different types of people from different um, walks of life potentially, uh, and and bringing in new blood and new ideas. But I think it's these cultural issues are, are ultimately what you need to shift cultural issues that we need to shift grant uh neil i'll, I'll come to you next uh, but you've uh if that's okay yeah absolutely um i guess um a couple of thoughts on, on issues one um we need to get better policy management and, and does that mean we need to put everyone on project management training courses you know and, and properly you know implement things rather than putting something up and it's this sort of firework effect, you know, there's, there's this latest innovation in town and then it just fizzles out. Five years later, we've got another policy document saying the same thing and we just go through this this, this, this rotation. Um, at the same time, counter to that, because I mean, that's very um, managerial, but it, we do need that. 
the counter to that is if we're talking about empowerment, let's properly empower. Um, there's no point in talking about empowerment at one level and then we're adding in extra tiers of bureaucracy at another. So, for example, um, local authorities um, criticised for their um, control over schools and they'll be added another tier of regional improvement collaboratives at a time that we're trying to strip out things and trying to make things clearer. Um, for all it's said to be um, supportive, it's just another tier of, of bureaucracy, which goes back to that control element. Now, some of that, as I said before, I think it's because it's a relatively new political system with the Scottish Parliament but also some of this historical cultural stuff, if, if you date, date back it's the church system and goodness education in Scotland historically dates back to the, the church system and what yeah. was it for? Yeah. It, it, it was for control that's what education was for, let's look at ourselves on um, <laughs> that that was a, if you had a, a philosophization of, of, of education at that time, control mm. would feature pretty highly in it um, solutions wise um, we, we need to um, get to a point where you know voices like a week, for example, a welcome. Oh, I think we've lost Neil. Just at the very moment he was, he was praising a week. That's that's sad for it. Oh, you're back, Neil. You were just praising a week. Carry on. Are you there, Neil? I think it's maybe there, but is that me or you? I think that's Neil. It is Neil. Yeah. Sorry, Neil. You you were just you were praising a week. So carry on. I'll go. I'll go back and do it again. Then I'll go back and pray to him again. Just quickly, because Emma's got to leave in a second. So, so, so culturally, we need to get in a position where you know we, we we embrace and we take on board the ideas of innovators like Avik. You know, voices that are, are positive um, and 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 giving change. I dug out before we came here a paper that I gave in twenty sixteen. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> the internet's not oh, on our side today, is it? Um, all right, um, Emma, do you want to just ch ch do you want do you want to give in your tuppence worth? Yeah, no, no, sure. Oh, I mean, I, I think um, one. Oh, sorry. I, I think that one of the things maybe in terms of you know sort of the lessons that we can learn. I thought that one of the recommendations that came out of the OECD review was quite interesting, and that was about you know kind of regularly checking the implementation of a big you know sort of change like curriculum for excellence against its original aims and against the original intentions and it sort of struck me when they said that that it was really quite strange that we'd never done that ourselves really prior to bringing yeah. in the OECD like why were we not capable of just doing that as a country by ourselves and just making sure that that this curriculum was on track and doing what we'd intended it to do because anyone who was listening to teachers and head teachers knew that there were there were you know knew exactly what the problems were there was nothing really that was all that surprising actually and what the OECD found and said I mean then just to kind of you know just to sort of you know sort of back that up in in 2018 we had carried a story with a quote that um, the new qualifications had killed the curriculum for excellence in secondary schools. And that was a secondary head teacher, you know, so so all of these views and things were out there just ready to be, you know, kind of gathered up and hoovered up. And it's a bit of a question mark about why did it, you know, sort of why did it really take us so long and why did we need the OECD to do it? Why could we not have, you know, sort of just been checking, you know, sort of against the original, you know, sort of aims and intentions. So I think that that's definitely 
definitely a lesson that we can learn for the future is that that's something that we should be doing going forward. And, you know, and, and in terms of getting the new qualifications right as well, you know, I think that Louise Hayward, um, who is leading the independent review of um, qualifications and assessments, has been quite careful to set out these, you know, sort of principles at the beginning, because her idea is, is that we'll always be checking and going back and making sure that the new qualifications regime that you know sort of ultimately is introduced the new model is actually living up to what we thought that we wanted it that you know what we said that we wanted at the beginning of the process so I think that that's a lesson that we can learn going forward is that you know let's just keep checking and just keep you know and keep on doing that by ourselves and that's what the vision is is that the new national agency for Scottish education should uh should have that job right brilliant um Neil can we just very quickly come back to you and so you can complete the sentence you were trying to say about innovators you're you're muted Neil yeah, absolutely. I want to go back in my third attempt at praising Avik. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, I mean, ultimately, um, we've got to get better at you know innovative ideas, well-researched ideas, and grapple with them and take them on board. You know, Avik's offered up lots of ideas, particularly around about innovation and education. And initially, they're buffered. And I, I dug out a paper that I gave to the Royal Society 2016. I was pilloried for it. I said at that point that CFE was dead. Pretty much what I said was in the Sterling report. And I gave seven recommendations for improvement. And the seven recommendations, actually many of them are now being taken on board, but we seem to be very slow at grappling with these ideas. Because unless your face fits, and unless you're part of a merry-go-round of senior leaders who um, rotate between senior posts, it seems that your ideas don't get taken on board to improve Scottish education. And that's a cultural issue again. We need to break that and be able to get a system where... As um, Major General Bob Bruce, um, once of the British Army, said, a good idea has no rank. How do we get to the point that the many good ideas and the enthusiasm for education in Scotland is taken on and actually led uh, leads to some sort of positive improvement? That's a cultural shift we need to look at pretty urgently. That, I think, is a brilliant place for us to end because uh, because I know we have to leave. Can I just thank you all for a really, really interesting discussion, a, a fantastic caravan-free discussion uh, about Scottish about Scottish education um, and uh, I'm really really grateful for your giving us your time I feel like I've learnt a lot in the last hour about something that continually has confused me as a parent but I think um, more conversations like this are, are so necessary if we're actually going to see lasting sustained improvements in the way in the way the country is run so thank you so much for your time uh, thank you for those who have listened um, we'll, we'll be back soon as I say with another subject which we'll put under the microscope in the same way in the hope that we can find ways of actually not just finding good policy, but actually implementing it in a way that is good for us all. So thanks very much and goodbye.